This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to the Fall 2018 UC Santa Barbara Innovator Stories Series, Episode 3. I'm John Greathouse, and you can follow me on Twitter, at John Greathouse. Tonight's sponsor is Tapjoy. If you've ever played a game on a mobile phone, how many people in here have played a game on a mobile phone? All right, guess what? You've interacted with Tapjoy. You just didn't know it. Tapjoy works with um, advertisers and app developers. So they, they, they monetize uh, games and, and other apps on the phone for developers, but they also help advertisers have a more engaging experience um, for smartphone users. So if you're an advertiser that wants to reach more smartphone users, you should be talking to Tapjoy. If you're an app developer and you want to make more money with your app, you should be talking to Tapjoy. Uh, and we really thank them for their support because without their support, we wouldn't be able to bring this conversation to you. So thank you. Dafina Tanchaba is here today with us. Uh, Dafina is a partner at, um, at U.S. Venture Partners. She's been an institutional investor for nearly 10 years, and she focuses on emerging technologies in the enterprise space. She joined USVP in 2012, and since that time, she's invested in a number of companies, including one called Raken, um, where I'm also in involved. I'm a board member and investor, and this is where I met her and realized just what an incredibly special person she is on many, many levels, her work ethic, her insights, the value she brings uh, to the company, and I was so honored when she agreed to come here. She, her schedule is crazy, um, and she's really, really, really busy, but um, I'm just honored that she's going to come here and share her insights uh, with us. She most recently served on the board of Previty, uh, which is a company that was recently purchased by Imperva for $140 million. What's nice about that is not only is it a great win for the company, it's a great win for Dafina and also for USVP because they were the lead investor and the largest shareholder. So prior to USVP, Dafina was with a, a venture fund called um, Tugboat Ventures. She joined them in 2010. And before that, she was with Vinrock, where she led the first institutional investment in Cloudflare. Now, since that time, Cloudflare has gone on and really become one of the most successful internet security startups in Silicon Valley. Uh, so I think even back then, when Dafina was sort of new to the investing game, she was proving that she had a really good nose for good opportunities. Before she became an investor, she worked at Microsoft, and she contributed to a number of projects there, including MSN Live ID, as well as MS Office. And during her tenure there, she co-authored several key patents. She got her MBA from um, Stanford. I hadn't heard of it. Um, and then she got, ended up getting her, her computer science degree, her undergraduate degree, graduating magna cum laude with a special focus on cryptography, efficient algorithms, and database systems from another school that I haven't heard of. I think it's in Boston. It's called Harvard. Let's welcome Dafina to our class. And I really do know your schedule, and it's crazy, and I'm so happy. Dafina is one of those people that when I asked her a while ago, but when I asked you, you were instantly yes. Oh, yeah, you weren't like, awesome. well, who, what, when is it, how many people, what's going on? You were like, yes, I'll do it. Oh, it's, uh, it's so fun. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you, guys. So I, I like to start at the beginning a little bit. And you're from Bulgaria. Yes. You grew up, or you spent time with your grandparents on their tobacco farm. 
And I know that at one point you said that some of the best lessons of life had came to you from those days. So can you, can you share with us a couple of those lessons? What are some things when you think back to the farm, your farm time that you still rely on? Sure. First, I want to acknowledge that there's at least one Bulgarian person in the Is room. Is there? <laughs> yes. Oh, you guys already connected? Is that like a thing? Like, uh, hey, it, it says Bulgaria. Bulgaria on his T-shirt. Oh, you're Cyrillic. kidding. In Cyrillic. So I'm probably <laughs> the only other person in the room that can actually read and understand what it says. Did you wear that on purpose? Oh, okay. No, you're supposed to be, you should have been cool and been like, nah, man. That's what we do. Is he stalking you? Do we need security? Or? No. <laughs> um, so, uh, again, thank you so much for having me, for being here. I know it's late. You probably have homeworks to write. Um, and I know this is a mandatory class, but still, thank you for being here. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> I, uh, so, yeah, I, I, uh, people ask me where I'm from. And I've lived for 20 years in the U.S., so I always say, I'm from the U.S., but if you're asking about the accent, the <laughs> accent is from Bulgaria. Um, because I think of myself as, a, as an American. Right, uh, right. So, so much of my formative years, so many of my formative years were spent here. But um, uh, I was born in a communist country, and uh, uh, I spent my teenage years in a country that was trying to transform itself into a capitalist country, and uh, it went through uh, a lot of economic and social turmoil in the process. When I was born, uh, my grandparents uh, made a living by uh, uh, raising tobacco, having a tobacco farm, and they did that for the first 14 years or so, 13 years of my life. Uh, my parents were doctors, and when I was born, they were in medical school, so I spent most of my childhood with my grandparents on the tobacco farm. <laughs> And uh, uh, I, I think of that time as a really important one uh, for my uh, uh, personal development because, uh, first of all, for uh, I don't know if any of you are familiar with what it takes to grow tobacco, <laughs> but it is one of the most labor-intensive mm -hmm. uh, farming um, uh, uh, there, there is. And especially in Bulgaria, with no uh, agricultural tools, it was all done by hand. So I was five years old, and we would get up at four in the morning uh, before the sun is too uh, too hot, before the day is too hot, we'll go on the farm, we will water the tobacco, we'll pick the leaves that are ready to be picked so that we can set them up to dry. We'll spend the rest of the day putting the tobacco leaves on long threads and hanging them uh, to, to dry. Then in the winter, we would uh, package the, the uh, dried leaves and sell, sell them to the tobacco companies to make tobacco out of it. And so I remember my hands being covered in tar because for any of you who has touched tobacco leaves, it leaves this really nasty black uh, material on your hands that's very difficult to take out. And the only way you take it out is by rubbing your hands on a stone on a rough surface so that you can take the, the tar out of your hands. It um, tears the skin and creates little sores that last the whole summer while you're working the, the tobacco fields. And I remember my grandmother used to say this almost daily. She used to say, you see how uh, awful it is to make a living with your hands. If you don't want to make a living with your hands, you have to invest in your brain. You have to study uh, so that you can uh, make a living in, a, in an easier way. Oh my god, you guys are taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, so I. Um, uh, you hit a chord there. <laughs> so I, I, uh, uh, I was five or six. 
I barely remember anything else from that time other than that it was very unpleasant. Mm -hmm. uh, and that instead of playing with the other kids, we did that all day long, uh, all summer long. And all I could think about is I don't want to spend the rest of my life doing that. But the other thing that it taught me, so yeah, so that, that was like the, hey, how, how I don't want to spend the rest of my life. But other lessons from that time that were important to me were um, strong work ethic. You know, if you, you, you kind of have to get some things done. You have to get up at 4, whether you like it or not. Someone has to work the land, so you got to get up at 4 a.m. And you're going to stay for as long as you have to at night until you go through every single tobacco leaf. Um, discipline, persistence, perseverance, I think th those are um, skills that, um, uh, character traits that not only, uh, 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 not only did I learn uh, as I was growing up with my grandparents, but also were instilled in me uh, from my parents who really valued um, uh, strong work ethic uh, along with uh, uh, good education. So th th those became the building blocks of uh, the, the moral code in, in my family. So, so help us understand how you went from the tobacco farm, Bulgaria, to the came to America, and I know you've told the story before, but I haven't heard the whole story, and I know the part I did hear was fantastic. Um, just how did that come about? And you, your English wasn't the, very good because you it didn't live isn't. here. No, I think it's okay. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> but but you, but of course, because you hadn't lived here yet. So you get into Harvard. you yeah. give us a little bit of color. I was very lucky. I, um, um, as I said, uh, my, my parents uh, really instilled in me a strong work ethic and appreciation for good education. So they uh, were um, pushing me, encouraging me to study hard, have good grades, pursue uh, knowledge. Yet at the same time, both of them being doctors, they had invested a lot of their own time uh, uh, becoming uh, experts in their fields. Uh, and uh, we were still barely making ends meet. Mm -hmm. So the uh, economic incentives in, the, in Bulgaria at that time just didn't, didn't align with the values that uh, my parents uh, wanted me to, uh, to have and hold dear. So I was thinking, um, you know, I will work hard, I'll study hard, I'll maybe become a doctor, and then I'll struggle like my parents do to raise my family. So the two things just didn't make sense. Uh, around that time, my mother would kill me if she knew I was sharing this story, especially now Hopefully that this, is gonna, this. this will live forever on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I was 15 years old, and I was so frustrated that uh, our life was just not getting better as a family that I told my mom, why don't you start a business? Now everybody's starting a mm. business. That was during the time when Bulgaria was no longer a communist country. And she said, what are you talking about? I'm a doctor. That the only thing I can do is to be a doctor. And um, uh, healthcare in Bulgaria at that time was uh, part of the um, uh, uh, part of the government. The government owned it. It was public. It was a socialist uh, healthcare system, and still is. And so um, I thought, well, I'll start a business then. And you know, my parents sort of rolled their eyes and they said, well, "What are you going to do?" And I said, "You know, I said I will start um, roasting. I'll start buying." Uh, uh, raw peanuts, because uh, my hometown was surrounded by uh, peanut farms. And I said, I will roast them, I'll package them in 100-gram packages, and I'll resell them through wholesale retailers to 
uh, resellers to restaurants because in Bulgaria, uh, peanuts are uh, an appetizer. They're, they're, they're eaten with, with alcohol and Bulgarians consume a lot of alcohol so they consume a lot of peanuts <laughs> with the alcohol. And I thought, you know, restaurants make money on the alcohol but they don't make money on the peanuts and it's actually, it actually takes up a lot of time for the chefs to do that, to roast peanuts. So I'm just going to, you know, start doing that. My parents were like, no way, like this is so embarrassing. The daughter of two doctors is going to go do that. So I convinced my dad to drive me to the local uh, uh, peanut farm, and he hid. He dropped me off about three blocks away so that nobody would recognize him, <laughs> that he's the dad of this 14, 15-year-old that is negotiating with uh, an old woman selling raw peanuts. <laughs> so I bought my first, with my savings, I bought my first 10 kilograms of peanuts. I went home, I roasted them, I packaged them, and I left them in a big Costco-like uh, store that uh, one of my friend's dads owned. In two days, they called me and they said, "Bring more if you have." Mm. Of course, they did me a favor. They never kept any of the any of the profits. They were they were you know they thought, "Hey, they're doing a favor to a friend of their sons." But I started making real money um, so much so that it became a real enterprise. I had to start paying for my dad's gas, for my for the electricity, for um, I even paid my six years old younger than me brother to help me pack pack the peanuts uh, in packages. Uh, and so I started making more money than my parents. Now, two doctors that had spent 20 years of their lives studying to be, my mother was a surgeon, ear, nose, and throat surgeon. She did facial reconstructive mm. surgeries. My dad was a neurologist, and I, at 15, selling peanuts, was making more money than them. That was wrong, right? Like, any way you look at it, that wasn't right. And that, to me, I think, was the time when I decided... Bulgaria at that time wasn't for me. Like I had to look for opportunities elsewhere because I wanted the effort I was putting in to, to, pay, to pay off. And I, I looked for, for me being in a place like the US uh, was, um, was the ultimate dream. Uh, I thought of it as the land of opportunities. And that's what, that, that's, that, that was at first the impetus for coming here. Uh, it wasn't very easy because I didn't know how to apply. I did not know many people at that time who had applied to schools in the US. I didn't know how to do it. So it was a long process, but essentially, I went to the U.S. Embassy. I asked them how I can apply. They uh, said, well, you know, look at this Barron's book that we have of an index of all the schools in the U.S. So I went through that book and one by one picked every single university that gave any form of financial aid to international students. I wrote down the addresses of 100 schools, and I sent letters, handwritten letters to all of them, saying, do you give financial aid to foreigners? And, how? and if so, tell me how I can apply to your school. All of them responded uh, and um, uh, told me I had to take the SAT. Well, I didn't know how or where or what the SAT was. So uh, I started, uh, I, I went back to the US Embassy. They gave me this old, another old book, a Baron's book that was as old as I was at that time, 20-year-old book with seven practice tests. And they said, well, that's the SAT book. I snuck out the book, photocopied it in one afternoon, put it back uh, in the library of the, of the consulate and uh, went back home and started studying English. I read Charles Dickens, I read old copies of Newsweek. I, I read anything in English that I could put my hands on. I was in an English language school, but uh, it's different when you study English as a second language. How many of right. you study totally. some language as a second language? Yeah. Can you imagine going to an SAT and taking the right. SAT in that right. language? Merci. It's very different, exactly. <laughs> Merci <done>. beaucoup, exactly. <laughs> And so um, I started preparing, and uh, I rationed my seven tests so that I can track progress. And I had this one shot of taking the SAT because it was very expensive, and it was only administered two or three times a year. I went and I took the test. Um, I, uh, I, I did very well. I was, I was very happy with my result. I, uh, 
I had 800 on math and 780 on verbal. Stop bragging. <laughs> just to give you an example of how hard I worked, I wanted it so bad, so bad to, to just to, to uh, come here. And uh, I applied to 50 schools. Um, I asked every single one of them to waive the application fee because I couldn't afford it. Mm. Uh, except every, every school except for two. Uh, you can name them. Shame honored. Them. Stanford and uh, UPenn. And they did not uh, want to honor the request for waiving the application fee. Look what they missed out on. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Well, I did end up going to Stanford, but afterwards you're right. <laughs> oh, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened was, so I applied, um, and uh, I was very lucky. I got into 12 schools on full scholarship. Mm. Wow. I ended up going to Harvard because it was the one school I had heard the most about. Um, and uh, uh, it was incredible. My parents had never been outside of Bulgaria. My grandparents had never been outside of mm. Bulgaria. When I told my parents I want to go to the U.S., it was exactly the same as if I had told them I'm going to be building a rocket ship in the backyard and going to the moon. It was exactly as likely in their heads that this was mm. going to happen. It, it felt so foreign, so far away. It felt like a different world, different planet because, because of how small and, and closed society in Bulgaria was. So um, in 98, I uh, came to Boston and, uh, and, and started uh, studies at, uh, at Harvard. I told you guys it was a great story. Um, so what? So twenty years later, how do your parents? I mean, obviously, a lot of has, has transpired. Do they have an idea of what you do? Like, is it still like just this distant they, land? Or so when I graduated college, I convinced my parents to move here as well. Oh. And by convinced, I mean I applied without them knowing for a green card for them, uh, because I knew if I told them I was going to do that, they would say no. So I secretly filled out the application forms uh, for Canada, though, because in Canada, uh, the immigration process is a point system, whereas in the U.S., it's a lottery-based system. And I knew that in Canada, the likelihood is high of them getting in. My parents are very young. Uh, so at the time, when I was graduating college, my parents were uh, 41 years old. Mm. Um, they were, uh, so, so once they got invited to the consulate for an interview, I told them about it. <laughs> and uh, they, they were pretty shocked. And my dad, both of them were very predictable. My dad said no. My mom was interested and intrigued. Uh, they took uh, some time to fight it over and agreed to, to do it, to go to the interview. Um, they got turned down. Uh, they got turned down because in Canada, the, the doctor unions are very, uh, are very powerful. Mm. And even though there, there is a a huge demand for doctors. There's not enough doctors to cover the land, to cover uh, all the needs. Uh, ca Canadian unions, doctor unions, do not want to accept immigrants who are, who are doctors um, in order to keep the... the um, in order to keep away competition. So my parents were turned down because the, uh, the officers didn't believe that they wouldn't practice medicine. So I was 22... 21 at the time, I had to hire a law firm, a Canadian law firm, to fight on behalf of my parents, to fight the decision of uh, the Canadian consulate. Uh, we fought it successfully, and after an, another year, my parents got a Canadian, Canadian green cards, and they moved right when I graduated college. They moved to Vancouver, Canada, um, and uh, because I was at that time, I had just graduated, and I was going to work for Microsoft in Seattle, and Vancouver and Seattle were just a couple of hours away. Yeah. When... Um, so my parents now live here. They've been living here for 15 years. They're Canadian citizens. They're very happy with their life in Canada. They still don't quite understand what I do for a living. <laughs> they, in fact, when I graduated business school and I told my mom, 
what I'm going to do. She said, what is that? And I said, well, I said, you know, it's investing capital in startups, in, in uh, investing money in small businesses that then grow to be big businesses, but it's very risky because not all businesses are successful. She said, well, so who do you work with? And I said, well, most of the people I work with are old men. <laughs> and, my like mom, and my mom said, oh, my God, you will never get married. <laughs> oh, no. That was her biggest fear was that somehow I will never get married because here I was working with men that were my, you know, my dad's age. So that was, you know, that was the level of, I guess, uh, uh, pride that she experienced in that particular uh, time, moment in time. My grandmother, who is still alive in Bulgaria, mm. doesn't um, doesn't appreciate at all. Uh, doesn't appreciate. Doesn't understand. Doesn't doesn't understand uh, what my job entails. And uh, we we almost never talk about it. But um, she's very proud of me. Uh, I go back to Bulgaria once a year, and I usually. Um, participated at a tech conference there. Right, I was going to ask you about that. Uh, and, and so I've been on, in, the local, in the local media, on, t on national TV, uh, giving interviews. And so my grandmother says that she doesn't even understand half the things I say. I speak in Bulgarian, by the way, there. <laughs> so she understands the language. She doesn't understand the concepts. But she says that she watches it every time. She records it, and then she replays it over and over again because uh, she says it warms her heart, and it makes her feel so good about uh, being a good parent, because she, in many ways, uh, in the early days of my life, was my primary parent, a caregiver. Um, so I think uh, they have different, my relatives have a different level of understanding, uh, but they all share uh, a sense of, I would say a sense of, um, a sense of pride, I hope, in, uh, in, in how far we've all come as a, as a family. Yeah, well, they should. So add this to her viewing list and have Google Translate at the bottom or YouTube Translate. <laughs> exactly. and she'll be completely confused because it will be so wrong. But, um, but at least she'll see you up on another stage. Exactly, and, and exactly, on another TV. Yeah, it'll warm her heart. So I was going to mention that um, I, I know that you've given a number of talks in Bulgaria. Uh, and I love the way they respond to you. It's, uh, it's, it warms my heart. Um, it must be rewarding for you to kind of be a bridge between the two cultures, between the two countries. Can you give us... Uh, just a quick maybe snapshot of what your view of, like, where is the Bulgarian startup scene right now? Is it 20 years ago where we were, or is it completely different? Or, yeah. Because they, so many, like, really talented tech people live in Bulgaria, right? And for so many years, many U.S. companies have been, have been using that tech talent. Yeah. When, you know, I'm wondering, when are they going to start just saying, hey, I'm not going to be an outsourced yes. tech team anymore. I'm going to do this myself. Um, Eastern Europe in general is a... a it has been a, a good source of um, engineering talent. Romania, Bulgaria, Serbia, yeah. Ukraine, Russia uh, have a very strong technical talent. And unfortunately, in many of these countries, because of it, their past history, you know, again, ca capitalism is a relatively new concept. Uh, they, uh, m most businesses in Bulgaria until 20 years ago were owned by the government. Uh, private individuals did not run or own businesses. And so if you think about it, the biggest problem with that is that the skills that uh, are required, the business skills that are required to start and grow a successful company, marketing, sales, business development, strategy, um, those skills still lack in that region. And it's going to take a while, uh, like all ecosystems, it's going to take a while for those skills to develop. And I think for, for, for a long period of time, um, uh, Bulgaria and, and the region will still be a good place to outsource um, uh, uh, engineering work. 
but it will uh, take a while to build companies. That being said, we just recently had our first uh, kind of big exit in Bulgaria, a company called Telerik that was bootstrapped by mm. a couple of guys, four guys who are now friends of mine, um, sold for $300 million, which uh, for Bulgaria was, uh, was huge. And so those four guys, uh, when they cashed out, they started investing their own capital in Bulgarian startups and uh, started forming venture firms. They also developed an academy uh, to, to coach uh, Bulgarian students uh, how to uh, be successful tech entrepreneurs and engineers. So I, I'm, I'm excited for the region. I try to go back once or twice a year and uh, contribute in, in uh, any way I can. But this is my home. Yep. So, I mean, that's how it, that's how it works. Right? Even in Santa Barbara, um, we had to have a few really big winners and then they act like dandelions. All those seeds go all over the community. And, and, and also just the fact that people know somebody who made money at a startup. Just breaking through that instead of, oh, startups, that's what they do. That's what crazy people do. Yeah. But to actually say, no, my neighbor was early at this company and they did well. So it's happening in Bulgaria. Yes, exactly. No, exactly. There's a couple of other companies now that are breaking out. and uh, doing do, you, do you think you'll ever invest over there? Is it something that... I mean, you're in kind of a unique position to be able to understand the culture, understand yes. the language, and be a top investor. The uh, USVP strategy is very um, uh, geographically focused on the US. So if I ever make investments, it would be uh, on a personal level, mm -hmm. uh, probably not at this time on a professional right. level. Timing's not right. But, That's right. But maybe the market, as the market matures, Who knows, yeah. Yeah, timing might be right for you. I, I'm going to have to stop and let a student ask a question, and I'll just keep going. Let's take the first student's question. Uh, what first attracted you to computer science, and how has it inspired your career investing in software as a service applications? Thank you for the question. Uh, I will probably disappoint you with my answer, <laughs> but it's still a good question. I, um, when I came to the U.S., uh, and I shared that with some students uh, a couple hours ago, but when I came to the U.S., my number one goal, and, and maybe some of you can relate to that, my number one goal was survival. How, how can I find a way to to build a life here, to stay here, to find a job here. Uh, I didn't have the, the kind of the liberty to pick whatever uh, really resonated with me. So in, when I came to the US in 98, uh, the demand for technical talent, technology talent for software engineers was really high. I uh, uh, was pretty strong in math and, uh, and sciences. I had never owned a computer. Uh, when I moved here, uh, I had never programmed in my life. But I thought, you know, hey, how, how, how much harder can it be than solving math problems? So I bought a computer and I took my first computer science class because I thought four years later when I graduate, it would help me get a job easily. Um, so it was a very pragmatic decision. Uh, it was a combination of what, what's uh, needed in the market, what the market wants, and also what my skill set uh, is and, and kind of the overlap of those two uh, was uh, was how I made the decision. Uh, again, it was a very pragmatic uh, way to look at it, but it served me well. I uh, um, it was very difficult. Studying computer science was very difficult. The majority of my classmates uh, were years ahead of me, literally. They had owned the computer at that time for 10 years already. They had programmed. Many of them had won competitions, computer science competitions, and I had no idea what what, how to even turn on a computer. So it was very difficult and at times um, it was humbling, at times um, uh, uh, really crushing to, overwhelming and crushing to uh, have to compete with uh, people who were just so much better and had so much more advantage. 
but I, I kind of stuck with it. The first year was by, by far the hardest. I stuck with it, and over time, it got easier. Uh, now, the interesting part is that uh, I graduated in 2002, and that was when the tech bubble burst, so nobody was looking for engineers. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my timing was a little off. Uh, I ended up still getting a job as a software developer at Microsoft. Uh, and over time, you know, when you, I think that uh, when you put uh, a lot of effort into something, you usually, not always, but you usually start liking it, even if you really didn't care for it as much to begin with. The, the, the hard work, the effort you put in, um, and seeing it starting to pay off, it, it somehow endears you to the project, and, and inevitably you build... Maybe not a passion, but you, you, you build love for it. I think that's true for all relationships, by the way. You put work in and you get something out. So it's true for my professional uh, relationship with my subject, with computer science, with technology. Uh, I still think that there are people who are much, much better. But I'm good enough to compete. And what you did well. So, I mean, obviously there is, I mean, hard work will only get you so far. So you had the talent and, you know, and the passion. As you say, you developed, maybe not passion, but you developed a liking for it over exactly. time, which is, which is great. And now in your current role, having that basis, I mean, you're not writing code, but working with tech companies and being at that oversight role, it's, it's, I mean, you have an advantage I don't have. It's, I don't have that technical background, so, and I rely on you. But you have the <laughs> and our operating background and the business background. Well, that's why, that's <laughs> why we're all, all on the board. Yes. That's why it works that way. So anyone who's ever watched uh, this series knows that I love to talk about mentors. It's hugely important for this audience. It's hugely important for the people watching this online. Talk to us about mentors in your life um, you know, what, what they did or didn't do for you, and then what kind of the role you played with the mentor back when you were a mentee. Like, how, how did those relationships play out? Uh, it's, uh, I spent some time with a, a few of you earlier today, and uh, we talked about that a little bit. I think mentors are, are very important. Um, it, it, it's, it's kind of one of those sources of um, uh, hopefully free learning uh, and invaluable uh, learning based on other people's experience and knowledge, usually people who have gone through the same path and have faced similar issues and already have many of the answers. So we can skip uh, some of the mistakes in life by stepping kind of on their shoulders. Sure. Um, but I think uh, it's very difficult to find mentors. At least I found it hard to find mentors, not, not because there aren't people who are worthy of being mentors. I'm surrounded by incredibly smart people. But in practice, it's really hard to pick someone and say, hey, do you want to be my mentor? Well, they have their, they have their life. Uh, they're probably very busy. They probably have a lot of other commitments. And so how do you, you know, how, how do you um, build this kind of relationship where uh, you see them on a regular basis and you learn on a regular basis? It almost feels like school, right? But, but school, in a way, is, um, is very unusual. It's not how real life works. You know, you just go every day and you get the lesson and you go home and you do the homework and you submit it and, you know, you, the teacher checks whether you've learned the lesson. In real life, things happen a lot more spontaneously and, and um, uh, they're less planned. So the way I've noticed that for me it has worked best and, can, and I continue to use this as, uh, in, my, in my job is um, I, in, in almost every uh, uh, circumstance uh, throughout my uh, professional life, I, I pick people from, from the ones that I'm surrounded by that I think I can learn certain things from and I look for those things. For example, I go on boards, I'm on seven boards or eight boards. Many of the people that I'm on boards with are uh, significantly more experienced than me and they have their own unique uh, strengths. And so I watch these people uh, in the boards 
And there situations inevitably arise, uh, discussions that we have, uh, observations they make. And I just pick one or two things uh, that, that stand out for me during, during that board meeting, during that interaction, and I try to remember it and use it. I also think that, so in, in a way, it's a very organic uh, uh, way of, of uh, um, enlisting mentors without them even knowing, just by watching them, observing them, interacting with them. Then there are, there, there are the very few, the one or two that uh, have been prior bosses of mine, and I just stay in touch with And If I have a hard problem to solve, I send them an email and I say, hey, there's something that I'm struggling with. Give me advice. Like, how would you approach it? These are my advisors, and they're also mentors in a way. But I think that these everyday uh, uh, life learnings that we can um, st steal from people who are more experienced than us, older than us, is really, for me, has been one of the best uh, uh, way to, to learn because these are gifts that they're not even aware that they're giving you if you choose to take them. Uh, I, I, in, in my partnership, there are some, uh, some of my partners are uh, very experienced, and I see how they interact with uh, their companies and their, their, the other partners and observations they make at board meetings. Um, my parents as well, occasionally. Uh, they, would, they, would, uh, they still have things to teach me, even though our <laughs> lives are so different. So uh, that's, how I, that's how I've uh, approached it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, um, I, and I think uh, it, I found that to be the most reliable way of learning, is right. when you don't commit the other person to teach you, you just find ways to be in their presence and, and kind of steal from right. them almost. Right. But be mindful of, and be learning. Be in active learning mode. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Looking for the, and, the lesson. Yeah. And, and most of us just want to talk and have, right? And, and being mindful and listening is huge. So, do you have a point of view on women having a, a female mentor? Do you think that's important, or seeking a male mentor so that they can understand yeah. that world? Or do, do you have a point of view on that? I mean, I think that uh, uh, I, I I think that it's probably easier to uh, envision success if you see someone who looks very much like you either has the same background as you, or looks like you, or the same gender, the same similar uh, uh, parents, ethnicity. I, I think the more someone looks like us, the more we can envision their success being also our success. And in that way, I think it's, it probably helps, helps the most. But I think, um, uh, and because, because of that shared background, their challenges might be similar to ours, mm. uh, which can also help with these lessons. Right, having similar experiences and, and drawing from from the less, from their experiences and the, and the lessons there. That being said, I think uh, um, in general, most of my mentors actually have been men, and uh, I uh, I'm very thankful for all of them. Um, I, I just didn't find myself in a position, I guess, where I I had um, uh, many female mentors to draw from. Right. It's still my industry is still one that doesn't have a lot of. Uh, a lot of women, right, and right. that was true also for software engineering back when I was at Microsoft. So, uh, and before that at Harvard, uh, when I was studying computer science, there there were there was only I don't know 20, 30, maybe 40 students at most that were studying computer science. Now it, now I hear it's like 500 of the upcoming class, incoming class wants to declare computer science as their major. But at the time when I was uh, studying computer science, it was just very few students. And, and how many women? Uh, I don't know, maybe 10%, 15% of, of, of all students were women. So um, I, I just learned to, to work uh, with, with, with my classmates, uh, regardless of the 
the gender or uh, their backgrounds, where they were from, and we just shared common misery in like doing our <laughs> homeworks uh, all night long, you know, pulling all-nighters in the computer science center, and that's how we bonded. So at one point you said um, that you have the best job in the world. You might have said that in Bulgaria. I'm not sure, but I know that you said it. And things were probably going well then <laughs> when <laughs> right. I said it. You just had a great board meeting. Exactly. So I, I'd love for you to talk about what do you enjoy the most, but also what's less fun. Because, I mean, a lot of people from the outside looking in, I wrote a blog entry, How to Become a VC, and it's been read a gazillion times, which shocks me that that many people would want to become interested. a VC, right? So let's talk about the, the good, but also let's talk about some of the bummer sort of downside of the NBC. Yeah. Uh, for me, the, the best part of the job is uh, the opportunity to uh, work with very smart people and work on many different projects at the same time. Uh, as an investor, I get to sit on several boards, five, seven, 10, 12. Each company has its own challenges, but also they have many shared challenges. So it's really an interesting experience where... Um, I get to work on all of these uh, businesses at the same time and see them develop at their own pace, learn from that, and, and cross-pollinate, share the knowledge across the portfolio. Now, uh, I also enjoy my day-to-day -day, uh, uh, work, which is meeting a lot of other startups, that not, uh, not all of them that I can back or uh, would be interested in backing, but many of these people um, share passion for what they're building, incredibly uh, deep insight into the area that they've chosen to dedicate their time and effort in. And so I find that almost always I learn something from them. And plus, passion is contagious. You know, it just makes you excited to listen to that person's story and why they think they'll be successful and what the opportunity is. So, so that's, that's all the, uh, the enjoyable part of the, of the job. The, the part that I, um, the, the parts that I struggle with is uh, the statistics in early stage venture capital are somewhat disheartening. <laughs> About a third of the companies that you invest, that one invests in, will fail completely. There'll be a write-off, a zero. Um, about a third will return just about the same the amount of capital that was deployed in them, and it's that last one third that would drive all the returns in the portfolio. So if you are a venture capitalist, early stage venture capitalist, and you invest in 10 companies, you know that statistically speaking, a third will die, a third will just get you, get you your money back, and you just have to hope that that last one third hits it out of the ballpark to make up for the other two thirds. Now, the numbers are not in, in your favor, right? It's, uh, it, it's pretty... Um, uh, it's tough to even think of it in those terms, but you also still have to build a portfolio knowing that those are the odds. So thinking about how to construct a portfolio with the best chance of success is, is really important. And even when I know that those are the statistics, it still hurts and it's still incredibly stressful and painful to shut down a company, to write off an investment. Because many of the investors in our fund are... You know, they're pension funds, they're non-profits, they're, they're people who gave us their money believing in us to make more for them, not less, or the same amount of money that they gave us. So I, I always think about them as well. I think, oh, wow, I, I'm disappointing my investor. They, you know, they gave us 30 million, they gave us, in, in, in all, they have given us 300, our fund size is 300 million. And I think, you know, will I, will we collectively, my partnership, be able to give them the kind of returns that make them want to come back and, 
and be happy with us and be proud of us. So that's very tough. Uh, writing off a company is very difficult. It's incredibly stressful. It's, I've lost so many, uh, I've had so many sleepless nights uh, worrying about that. The other thing that's really hard is that it's a job where you have a lot of, um, uh, a, a lot of influence, but almost no authority. I mean, I guess you have an authority as being a board member, being part of the governance body of the company. But really, all you can do in terms of action, the only thing a board does is hire and fire the CEO. Everything else, every, every other decision in the company, you can give advice about, mm -hmm. you, yep. can, you yep. can advise, you can consult, but ultimately it's someone else's decision and it's someone else's execution. And that can be really tough because if you're, if you're sitting on the outside and you're watching someone do it and you think you can do it better, whether you're right or not, doesn't matter, but if you think you can do it better but your, uh, your hands are tied yep. and the only thing you have is just the influence of, of, of the, 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 the kind of trust you've built, the relationship to convince the person, uh, it, can be, it can be at times uh, challenging and frustrating sure. and, and sometimes you just also have to accept that um, people will walk their path and make their mistakes and learn from them and no matter how much you force it, you just have to allow them to make mistakes and hopefully learn from them uh, as quickly as possible. But, but I think it goes back to, I mean, I completely agree, it goes back to what you said earlier about picking the investor in, in both ways, like you picking the entrepreneur and the, investor, and the right. entrepreneur picking you because you are going to have those, there's just going to be difficult conversations. Yes. Um, and whether somebody wants to engage and, and really evaluate what you have to say, and we still want them to make their own decisions. I mean, That's the, right. the day that we don't want an executive to make their own decisions, the day we should ask them to leave. So you want them to make their own decision, but you're right, it is a little bit frustrating sometimes when, especially if it's something where you've seen it before, you've done it before, you, you're pretty convinced that, that, that the outcome's going to be what it is, and then it is yes, that outcome. Exactly. Um, and I agree with you. And I would add, for me, the most frustrating aspect was saying no to so many people. I mean, you, you know, you'll do a yes. couple investments a year, and you talk to, or you at least get exposed to maybe a thousand companies. And I would always fall in love with the pitch and their idea, and it's like, I love it. And then I could say yes to one or two in a year. I would uh, like to add one more yes. uh, to the list of the, the challenges. Um, I think on the outside, venture capital looks really glamorous. You get to sit on boards, right. you represent uh, a lot of money, capital. It, it's, it looks and feels like a very prestigious job. Isn't it like Shark Tank? Exactly. I, someone else asked me about that today. I don't watch Shark Tank, it's but, like but, Shark I, but it's nothing like it is from, yes, from, from what I've heard about it. It's actually, there's, there's, very, there's almost nothing glamorous about it, I'll tell you. It's a sales job in many ways. It's because all of us investors... We sell one thing. We sell money, right? We sell our money for, your, for the equity in your company. And when there's a lot of money out there, as it is the case today, when there's money one can take from a bank, from a, a wealthy friend, from wealthy parents, from um, a family office or another institution, all, and all money is the same, it's very difficult to, um, uh, to win uh, an investment opportunity that others want as well. And that's where the personal brand and other, uh, uh, you know, other things that, that, that an investor offers start to matter. But it's an incredibly competitive uh, uh, business uh, with many smart people in it, with a lot of capital, and it's getting harder and harder to win investment opportunities and win them at the kind of price where you will drive the return for your investors that they 
expect from you. I absolutely agree 100%. Let's take a couple more student questions. Um, how do you see software companies advancing in the future, and how have you played a role towards that advancement? That's a, a difficult question, very broad. Um, I think, uh, I'll tell you about my role, uh, I think about it uh, a lot, especially since I just uh, described how little impact we can have, direct impact. Um, I think uh, one, one of the things that I'm proud of is that uh, the companies that I invest in uh, subsequently create job opportunities for, uh, uh, for, uh, for developers, for uh, business people. So the, the jobs created is a very quick direct impact. Uh, the companies that USVP invests in, additionally, many of them are life sciences companies. They're companies that fight cancer, cancer therapeutics. That, that is another feel-good um, uh, uh, element of my job as it relates to my firm. Uh, I, um, the, the way in which I think I advance uh, or at least help the, the, the companies is, as I said, by um, uh, taking the best practices of all the companies that I work with and that I'm exposed to, many of them I don't work with all the time. USP has 70 companies, active companies in the portfolio that we review regularly on a quarterly basis and we learn from each of them what they do really well and where they struggle. And I take all these lessons and I can spread them across the, the companies that I work with. That's another way in which I, I like to think that I, uh, that I help. Um, I am happy to be an investor and a woman. I think that uh, that, um, that can help more women join the, the field. I see that because I speak to students like you. I speak to focus groups of specifically women who uh, are interested in STEM but are not sure that it's for them, uh, doubt themselves, question themselves. And so having the opportunity to talk to them and uh, show them that uh, if I have been able to do it, you can do it too. And then later hear that so at least some of them chose to pursue their, um, uh, their uh, dream of, of being a software engineer or working for a startup is another way in which I like to uh, think that I can... Uh, that, that can help those companies. I think software companies can still benefit from diversity. I think, by the way, that's true for almost any project, any any company, software or other. And by diversity, I don't mean just gender diversity, but any kind of diversity. I think that we we all need different points of view, and the, the more diverse the points of view in the room, the more likely it is that we'll get to an interesting uh, uh, and, a, and a better answer. Uh, so these are some of the ways. Let's talk about diversity because we still have a tech problem in the, with, with regard to diversity. Um, when I'm, I've had a, real, a lot of fun writing an article about Sam Phillips. So Sam Phillips started Sun Records. Um, and one thing that Sam Phillips did was he literally had an open-door policy. So he, would, he had a little recording studio in Memphis, and if you wanted to walk in his door, she had to get there, but if you were able to walk in his door, he would listen to you. He would give you five seconds if you were terrible, and he would give you a recording contract if you were fantastic. And if you haven't heard of Sam Phillips, you might have heard of some of the people he discovered. B.B. King, Elvis Presley. I'm not sure you've heard of him. Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins, Ike Turner, Johnny Cash, and, and there's more. I've always thought if we could ha- – that's an ideal, right, because it's hard to pull that off. But if we, could do that in, if we could do that as venture capitalists, if we could literally listen to anyone – and, and, and be kind, but be quick with the negative feedback. Like, this isn't for me. It's not. 
I just think we would, there's so many, I think there's so many undiscovered Jerry Lee Lewis entrepreneurs out there that just never get a chance to meet you. They never get a chance to meet me. Um, every, every blog, including mine, said, how do you get an investment from a venture capitalist? Get a referral. Well, that's a wonderful shortcut, but what if you don't know anybody that knows John or Dafina? And so it results in a lack of diversity. So this is a rambling lack of a question here, but I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts on what we can do to increase the top of the funnel so that we can have more, just look at more deals? Um, and have you, was there ever anything that a company or an entrepreneur did that wasn't a referral from a trusted friend that got your attention that led you to have a conversation? So a bit of a like an eight-part question. But. I, I, I read most of the, uh, almost all of the cold, cold emails that I, I receive. Which is not the case for most people. And, and I try to answer all of them. Yeah, um, I it's, it's I usually, I mean, it's a short answer. I, might, I might say, hey, this is not an area of investment interest for my firm, but thank you for the consideration. Yeah, right. um, and uh, uh, s- several times I've, uh, I've responded to people who have asked for, uh, especially students, uh, if students reach out and... Um, uh, ask for help. Uh, I, I would s- uh, set aside 15, 20 minutes for a call. It, it's difficult. We're always just very busy, so it's, it's difficult to carve out time um, f- for an infinite amount of uh, questions, but it's also surprising that very few people do reach out. Right. And I think that uh, that's a, a lesson for, for all of us, for me including. I think the only sure way to not get something is if you don't ask, if you don't try. Um, I, I'm, very, I'm surprised and, and, and happy when I uh, hear or, or or read an email from a student that just uh, you know is sending a, is just sending it out of the blue without cold outreach and explaining why they did that and what they're looking for. I, I would set aside some time and, and talk to them. Um, I think that the the topic of diversity is a really tough one, uh, and I I don't have a good way of, um, right. of. There's no silver bullet. Exactly, exactly. I you know I think about uh, Bulgaria. I think. Um, there it's 50-50. Mm. And I don't think Bulgaria is doing particularly um, uh, a good job at encouraging women to study computer science uh, I, I, or, or, or sciences in general. I just think that it, it's just, it, it always was part of the culture that, uh, um, b- b- because it was a, a poor country, everybody had to work. Women mm. didn't have the, mm. um, families didn't have the uh, luxury of having one of the family members stay home while the other worked and made enough money to cover uh, all expenses, so everybody always had to work. And as I look looked around, all my friends, uh, we were all equally poor. But everybody's parents, both both parents worked, and it, they were um, they were engineers, they were doctors, they were um, in the military. So I, I think a little bit of it is cultural too, at least here in the states. Mm. I'm starting to appreciate that. Uh, well, it's kind more. of you to to offer your time. What I typically do is I do try to respond to everyone. I think I feel like I at least owe them a response. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes it's not a fit, it's just not what I invest in. Um, but I'll often say, hey, but if you want to send me a deck, I'm not your investor, but if you want to send me your deck, I'll give you quick feedback. And again, it's surprising most, most people don't do that, I, which is uh, fine. <laughs> I, I, so I was in San Diego a few months ago, and uh, I received a uh, completely cold outreach email from uh, a guy who said he lived in San Diego and he built, he built a business, and he sent me his deck. I looked through the deck, and I thought... Uh, well, the the kid had done a good job. Like he had grown his business from zero to three million, and he didn't have any investors, and clearly he didn't have a board. Like it was pretty clear from the deck that 
he did not know much about venture capital, didn't have exposure to that startup ecosystem yet. He had done right. something right. So I, I met him in a, nice. in a coffee place downtown San Diego and I said, hey, you know, this is not going to be for you as VP, but let, let me give you advice on how I would approach it if I were you. And these are the resources that are available to you where you can go read and, and find uh, more information. And uh, four months later, he um, sent me another email and he said that uh, he found angel investors in San Diego. So I was pretty happy about that. But I, 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 the other thing is, when I applied to the US, I didn't have a lot of information. And, and getting information was almost half the battle. Mm. And so I, in particular, am sensitive to that when I see someone else struggle with, with right. this lack of um, uh, lack of information, availability of resources. Right. So um, it, it, it resonates with me, and it's, some, it's an area where I try to be uh, helpful. As soon as I got into school in the U.S., I, I bought uh, SAT books, and I sent them back to my mm. hometown, to the, um, the local, sold them. Come the on, local library. Make some money. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I've been doing that since, uh, uh, just uh, trying to find ways yep. to uh, expose Bulgarian students to... Uh, to, to U.S. schools and ways of uh, getting exposure to uh, education. Well, here. you're very kind. And there's a couple of good lessons there. One, a small act of kindness like that can really change somebody's life. And then two, the fact that that person took the time to, to, to close a loop with you. Oh, it really good, yeah. It, I mean, it's, that's what we get paid in, right? That's we right. get paid in that kind the of acknowledgement. Generate, absolutely. Yeah, and so just to take the time and say, hey, you probably don't remember me, Dafina, you met with me. A while ago, but you know what? I ended up getting an investor, and you know, and thank you for your help. That that makes your day, right? For sure. Do you do you have any um, words of advice to young men going into the tech world, or young women, um, but mostly young men? Um, do you ever do you see things that that they're doing that you wish you could just kind of take them aside and say, "Come on, like, be self-aware. Don't do that. This is your chance." Uh, I. I don't know. I mean, that's also another broad question. Uh, I, someone asked me um, earlier how, what, what advice I would give them in how they pick their first job if they were going in tech. And uh, uh, it, it, it seemed like, and it seems like for, for most college graduates, the instinct is like, let me go in a small company that might one day make it big and, I, and so I can you know, make a lot of money. Uh, I think that's a fine strategy. Uh, uh, for for down for later like down the road, I, I think uh, of your first job as one of the as a continuation of of your um, education. Picking a company that's already performing well, and more importantly than that, picking a boss mm -hmm. from who from from whom you can learn yep. is more important than anything else. It's more important than the salary that you paid, the 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 town you're the city you're going to be in, where you're going to live. The most important thing is, is, is who you work for and the kind of lessons that person will teach you because that is your building block for later on. That, that, that will define what the next job is, what, uh, uh, what swimming lane you end up in. It, it all depends on that first job. And I don't want to um, make it sound uh, so important. It's okay to, you know, it's, if, if you make a mistake, it's fine. You can correct it. But I just don't think that... Um, uh, at, at, this, at this time, most um, college graduates appreciate what is important in a job. I, I think money is important. I'm an investor. I'm a capitalist. I, I get measured by the amount of money I make for others and for myself. So I will not uh, sit here and say money is not important and you shouldn't worry about it. But I think that 
in order to maximize long term your earning potential and your potential as a as a, a professional you need to think about how you invest in your career just like until now you've been thinking about what middle school you go to what or your parents thought about that for you what high school you go to what college you go to uh, building a career is exactly the same thing. You need to have a coherent and um, uh, compelling story being told by your resume of choices that make sense, that build on each other. Job A was number one, then job B built on job A and added these other skills, and then job C added to that. And then somewhere down the line, 10 years later, when you now have seen how things can be done successfully by others who are better than you and older than you and more experienced than you. Now, you can go into a small company and offer that, and you can be that guy or that woman that will teach someone from, from college how to do it. And it doesn't take that long, but you need to invest the first 10 years of, of your career in learning. Because what you learn in college, some of it translates, but most of it doesn't translate into your next job, into your first job. And so you have to think of that first job as another, another school, another, another college, another degree you're, you're getting. And if you think of it that way, as an investment in your long-term career, chances are you'll you make a better decision in, in, than if you just think about uh, how much money you'll make yeah. or whether this company, uh, you know, maybe one day can make it really big or if, if the location kind of works for you, you know, things that are um, slightly less important. So I stole a line from Mark Suster, who he probably stole it from someone else, and I completely agree with you. There's a time to learn and a time to earn, and right out of school, it's a time to learn. You're building exactly. that foundation that you're going to put the rest of your career yes. on, and you'll make money down the road. Um, so I'm, exactly. I'm with you again. So let's, uh, last question. So... USVP, you're there, you're not going anywhere. Any of the partners watching this, she's not going anywhere. But once that's played out, what, what, are the, what other mountains do you fantasize about climbing? Like, what, what do you see down the road for you? You know, it's, it's hard to imagine that, uh, to, to envision uh, what's after, because I, I think there's so much still that I need to do. Uh, there, there are so many challenges uh, that uh, need to be overcome and lessons to be learned that it's really difficult for me to imagine what that next thing will be. I, I know uh, it will come to me eventually, but I think for the next 10 to 15 years, I will continue to be an investor and hopefully, uh, if my firm would have me, and uh, um, continue to help companies and learn with them, through them uh, as well. Um, and, and maybe the next phase of my career will be one where uh, uh, I hopefully give, give even more back, uh, more of my experience, hopefully more of my wealth uh, to, um, uh, to, to younger people yep. uh, through, through teaching or other, other ways. Yeah. yeah, I didn't want to lead the witness, but I was thinking you, would, you have that teaching gene. You would be do a, you think? I do. I think you would be a fantastic teacher. But you're busy I now. So. I know you are. But speaking, you know, inspiring people, maybe a book or two, um, I think that's... I can't in, even imagine doing that. I think that's in your future, <laughs> but you're too busy to worry about that now. But thanks again for coming. We oh, really appreciate Thank it. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you so much for having me. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.